1: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect interview, where we meet the brightest minds to talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and this week we're talking to the philosopher and biographer Ray Monk, about an early 20th century intellectual superstar who mysteriously disappeared, G.E. Moore. You may not have heard of him, dear listener, and if so, worry not. He ranks as a rather obscure figure today. But back in the day, when he rubbed shoulders with Ray's biographical subjects, Russell and Wittgenstein, and all the big guns of the Bloomsbury Group, you couldn't miss him. Some even spoke of him as a god. Ray's essay on this curious tale of intellectual disappearance has been one of the most read pieces on Prospect's website all year. And I'm here with him today to dive deeper into the life and work of the great or formerly great philosopher, and to find out what, if anything, we've lost by forgetting him. So Ray, how are you doing? Very
2: well, thank you.
1: So before we get into this business of the waxing and waning of
2: reputations, just tell us factually, who was G.E. Moore? G.E. Moore was uh, the product of a a wealthy family, upper middle class family from London. He was brought up in the suburb of Upper Norwood. Um, He went to Dulwich School, And he then arrived in Cambridge to do classics, switched to philosophy, became a close friend of Bertrand Russell, joined the Apostles Conversation Society and was revered by them. And for the rest of his life was upheld by the Apostles and their friends as the epitome of philosophical genius and also was taken up by academic philosophers until about the 50s or 60s when people lost interest in him. And it looks as though the impact that he had, which was enormous on the apostles and their generation, might have depended upon personal contact. Because since his death, it's striking that his reputation has declined and the interest in him among professional philosophers has declined. So um, just tell us about this Apostle Society.
1: Um, I think you say in the piece it's still going. It sounds self regarding to the point of intolerable
2: yes well it was it was set up in the 19th century as a conversation group self-consciously elite the idea of it was to bring together the best and brightest undergraduates and fellows of cambridge as it were to weed out uh, those who were not fit to to discuss it they they would have conversations only with the brightest and best. That was the point of the society. And remarkably few people have found it intolerable. Um, when Wittgenstein went to Cambridge in in 1911, he quickly acquired a reputation as a genius and the apostles wanted him as a member. But he did find it intolerable. He found the, uh, the self-regarding nature, the uh, effete nature of, of, of the society Uh, And and their their self-congratulatory attitude, uh, saying, you know, look, to be an apostle is to be uh, one of the brightest, you know, diamonds in in literary and intellectual life. Wittgenstein hated all of that. But as far as I know, he's the only person who has rejected it. Okay. Right. Um, so, I mean, good
1: company of company it one. <laughs> but um, Moore obviously didn't hate it and did very, very well there. You just have extraordinary quotes from people like Bertrand Russell saying they regarded him as a god. Yeah, No, no small brain himself, Russell, of course. And then you also talk about these people who went from this elite student society on to form the Bloomsbury Group, which yeah. included writers like Virginia Woolf, but also people like Maynard Keynes, the father of modern economics.
2: Yeah yeah I think I'm right in saying that every male member of the Bloomsbury group was also an apostle Um, and you might regard the the Bloomsbury group as, as a sort of London wing of the apostles extended to include women because of course at Cambridge it was it was men only and all the leading intellectuals of the Bloomsbury group adopted this veneration of more that had begun in the apostles and that included Lytton Strachey, John Maynard Keynes, uh, Leonard and Virginia Woolf. Um, all of them looked up to G.E. Moore as their intellectual uh, mentor.
1: Now, um, like from the way you describe it, we can kind of imagine that this might have been an, a particularly good manager of egos and a man of easy charm, and maybe that was how he was held in such... Um, uh, reverence, but you've got some stories in your essay that suggest that he could be a slightly spiky customer
2: yes, I, I mean he had charm to be sure, but the other thing that he was venerated for was that he found it incapable to lie he he had to tell the truth and naturally that means sometimes. Uh, you don't tell those those little white lies that um, social grace partly consists in. So f- there's a story that Russell tells that he was discussing philosophy with Moore. And he suddenly said to Moore, you don't like me much, do you, Moore? And there was a silence. Moore thought about it and then said, no. And then they got chatting about other things. <laughs> Now you might say that 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 established him as a sort of rather difficult character but that isn't the way Cambridge at that time saw it. What they saw was somebody incapable of dishonesty.
1: Mm, I see and so um, a certain kind of greatness maybe in personality that comes across in person if not
2: um, on paper. Yeah there's an interesting remark that Wittgenstein made um, to his friend and, and student Norman Malcolm who once said that um, Moore's inability to lie, uh, Moore's innocence, Moore's innocence was of great uh, uh, credit to him. And Wittgenstein said to to Malcolm, well, yes, Moore has this innocence. He's incapable of dissembling. He's straightforward. He said, but I can't see that that's to his credit because it isn't a virtue that he's had to fight for. That's just the way Moore is. Hmm. And I think the same was so that, that he had this innocence that people found beguiling and attractive. And also this utter honesty that likewise people venerated. Wittgenstein's point was Moore didn't have to try hard to be like that. He just was like that. And so if we turn to the
1: intellect, because I mean, there must have been and intellect, he was a kind of, you know, he was a senior philosopher and, and, and all the rest of it and a valued conversation partner of like Russell, Virginia Woolf, Wittgenstein, all these other people you talk about. If, if we turn to the um, intelligence rather than the character, there must have been some, of course, he, he, he didn't get to be a senior philosopher out of nowhere. And um, like people regarded him, including Russell, Wittgenstein, Woolf, all these people as like a, a, an, a, an impressive conversation. Um, a conversational partner. Um, So what theories, if any, did he bequeath?
2: Okay, well, let's first of all talk about what kind of philosopher he was. So neither Russell nor Wittgenstein regarded Moore as a great original philosopher. His talent really was dissecting the views of other people. Moore said of himself once that he didn't become a philosopher because he found the world puzzling and he wanted to understand the world better. He became a philosopher because he said he found the, the things that philosophers said about the world puzzling. And that characterizes more or less his entire output. He first got drawn into philosophy uh, when he was invited by Russell into Russell's rooms to discuss philosophy with MacTaggart, um, who famously claimed that time was not real. And Moore found this so puzzling that he couldn't let go. And that was Moore's virtue as a discussion partner, that he wouldn't let things go. If something didn't make sense to him, he would keep on and on and on about it. And so to Russell and to Wittgenstein, this made him invaluable as a discussion partner because it it made them sure that they could defend their views against somebody who was determined not to let something unclear or manifestly false get by.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing.
1: Find the weak point in the theory and unravel it. But in yeah. terms of his own theories, I mean you've got, as well as some very nice things about his character that Wittgenstein said, you've got Wittgenstein saying, you know, that he uh, showed how far you could get in life whilst being um, stupid. Um, and um, th- th- one of the only theories he's known for, if I can call it a theory, is you could wave your hands in the air and prove that the world
2: was really there. Is that right or am I being uh, fairly...? <laughs> okay, well the th- I guess the thing that he's most famous for is Principia Ethica, which is the work of his that the Bloomsbury's uh, thought was his masterpiece, a book published uh, on ethics, in which he dis- he spends most of the book dismantling the views of other philosophers about ethics, which was what he was supremely good at. And he destroys any attempt to define goodness in terms of a natural property let's say pleasure or something like that and he calls those definitions instances of the naturalistic fallacy and then he goes on in the last two chapters of Principia Ethica to put forward a positive view of ethics which is that the good consists in the contemplation of beautiful works of art and fine conversation. Now you can see how that would have appealed to the Bloomsbury group, because what it does is give a philosophical underpinning Mm. to their set of values that they had anyway, independently. They, They may have liked his conclusion more than his reasoning. Yeah. And so the Bloomsbury group would always quote from those two last chapters, whereas professional philosophers will always examine the early chapters where Moore is giving very... Relentless and rigorous arguments against the views of previous philosophers. Now, the work that you're referring to was was later,
1: the hand waving, um, the literally hand waving stuff.
2: Yeah. So, Wittgenstein devoted the last two years of his life to discussing two papers of Moore's: a refutation of idealism and a proof of the external world in which more attempts to show that philosophers who've expressed skepticism about the external world can be refuted very simply. Mm-hmm. And the simple refutation consists of this. He says, I'm holding up one hand. I'm holding up another hand. These are two hands. They are two things that exist in the external world. Therefore skepticism is false now what interested wittgenstein about this he didn't take this as an argument against skepticism seriously at all for wittgenstein skepticism is not a view that one can show to be false it is just nonsense and the the question you know if if somebody says you know the external world doesn't exist or that we cannot say anything true about the world Wittgenstein would respond not by attempting to argue that that view is false, but by trying to analyze it much as a, uh, a psychoanalyst would, would, would analyze a psychological condition to see how anybody could get to that point. Mm. Wittgenstein would take it, take it for granted that nobody really believes that. So how do we get in a position where we're tempted to say that? That was Wittgenstein's approach. Now, what interested him about Moore and these things that he claims to know with certainty? Wittgenstein would say, you claim to know with certainty that what you have in front of you are two hands. Wittgenstein would say, what does that mean? Supposing somebody denies that these are two hands. Mm. It's not that you've got two views that you then have to evaluate the truth of or provide an argument for each and then see which argument is the better it's more a case of a complete inability to understand if somebody said to Moore no you're not holding up two hands then you'd you'd have to wonder well what do you mean by a hand then you know is this not what you mean by a hand and so Wittgenstein would say it's not that Moore knows with certainty that these are hands it's that if anybody disagreed with him that these are hands that would be a break in the communication in other words that these are hands is a condition of saying anything a condition of communication a condition of meaning and it's once you establish a process of communication once you are into a language that, that you can then use that language to say things that are true or false. That, mm-hmm. these are hands, is not something that could be true or false. Rather, it is a condition of meaning.
1: Okay, but th- so that sort of sounds like what he's doing, like
2: a kind of kindly
1: teacher looking at, um, you know, a, a painting by a <laughs> wayward child might say, well, I think this is very good because actually it means this, that and the other, is he's giving a different gloss to um, this very commonsensical thing of look, I've got this hand here, and look at the hand. well, I, th- I
2: think I think I think Wittgenstein would 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 go along with look, I've got a hand. That's no problem. The idea that that performance then refutes a philosophical position—that's where Wittgenstein would say, "Hold on a minute." Okay. So, but does he think that the the more performance um,
1: is kind of useful in reminding everyone how? conversation, logic, language
2: works. Even exactly, exactly. For Wittgenstein, this is the raw material of philosophy. It's not philosophy itself, you yeah. um, And so
1: um, uh, it would be to be kind to, um, kind to Moore to say that this really moved things on forward very, very far. into the
2: Yeah, I mean, so this is how I see it. This is how Wittgenstein see it, sees it. Um, there are philosophers dotted around the English-speaking world, yeah who debate and discuss Moore's refutation of idealism seriously. Even now? Even now. Right. There aren't many, there aren't very many of them. And if you went into most university libraries and went to the philosophy department, there would be half a shelf of books on G.E. Moore, and about 15 shelves of books on Wittgenstein. You know, so, <laughs> you know there, it's a very small number of people, but there are people who work in the field of epistemology, the theory of knowledge, who take more seriously. But I think most of us, I, I, I've talked to some of my contemporaries about this, we were all taught Moore's work as undergraduates, and most people I know have the same feeling, that this performance with the hands It's not a serious argument. Mm. Can I just ask you, why did there have to be two hands? It
1: feels a bit logically flabby, doesn't it? Because does not one hand make the point just as well?
2: I guess it does. I guess, though, that Moore wants there to be at least two things in the world. (laughs) All right.
1: I'll take that on trust.
2: And so, like, now that, you know,
1: in writing this piece, talking to a few colleagues and so on, you've had reason to reflect again. I mean... Do you feel that maybe the world has missed out on um, uh, the the sort of downgrading uh, and and the writing out of the script of Moore? Or do you think it was kind of inevitable because he didn't produce these great great breakthrough theories? I
2: think Moore is really interesting because those of us who never met him will never be able to feel the attraction that the Cambridge philosophers and the Bloomsbury group had for him because all we've got are his books and his articles and Wittgenstein when he he read Principia Ethica wrote to, wrote to Russell and said look you know please don't feel you know uh, please don't feel angry with me but this just isn't very good Moore repeats himself over and over again and it's not very clear and he said and things don't get clearer for being repeated and I think that is mo- most people's reaction to reading the work of G. E. Moore. If you haven't, if you haven't met him, the work just looks laboured, repetitive. You have the feeling that nothing very important is going on in it, and so on and so on. And, and this was uh, epitomised for me by the story I tell at the end of the uh, of the piece when I met Francis Partridge, the uh, last surviving member of the Bloomsbury Group, and we met in her lovely flat, and we would talk about her memories of Wittgenstein and her memories of Frank Ramsey, and then we would have general chat. And we talked about the Bloomsbury Group's attitude to to G.E. Moore, and I said to Francis, I've never understood why Moore is regarded as a great philosopher. His work seems so unclear, it's so repetitive. It's just not very impressive. And Frances Partridge leaned across the table. She put her hand on mine and she said to me, well, you see, my dear, he sang so beautifully. (laughs) But I can't hold you that really, can you? (laughs) I think think that, that for me sums it all up, that those who were in the room with Moore, who could feel the charm of his personality, who could feel the attraction of his inability to be dishonest and who so to speak could hear his voice so I think that that remark by Francis sums up an important element about G. E. Moore that distinguishes him from most other philosophers which is you had to hear his voice you had to be with him to feel why anyone would describe him as Magnetic or godlike or a phenomenon, these things don't survive on, on paper. It's interesting
1: listening to you, particularly that remark rather damning remark. It sounds like you know things don't get made any clearer by being
2: repeated,
1: but of course, you know, if you've got this rather sledgehammer approach in your writing and then you apply that in person in a sort of challenge function, you could imagine if we ask some brilliant TV politics interviewer like Andrew Neil to kind of write down his own thoughts about the future direction of the country they might not be coherent but he's good at taking a sledgehammer to other people's attempts to do that um
2: that's, that's right and um I mean to some extent the earliest model of Moore's kind of philosophical debating is Socrates in the early dialogues of of Plato where Socrates will you know so a question will arise what is piety and he'll ask that to people and then they will give examples of piety and then Socrates will say no I don't want examples I want to know what piety is and from then on it's just Socrates asking question after question and the interlocutors get to say yes Socrates no Socrates and you know and Socrates just keeps going and that I think you know is the kind of effect that Moore had on his uh, listeners. You're just missing a kind of Plato to write him up in the same exactly. way. Yeah.
1: Um, and does it make you think, I mean, you're someone who's, who's worked in philosophy all this time, and, uh, you know, keeps an eye on intellectual life. The, the kind of people we get talk about today who are very um, uh, prominent, you can name names or not name names, but does it make you wonder which people are going to survive who are seen as big wigs now on which
2: on? There, there are people, and I, I don't think I, I want to name names, but there are people um, who are commonly described in the media as, you know, Europe's greatest living philosopher and, and so on and so on. And these people you just know are not going their reputations as philosophers are not going to survive their deaths. Mm. Well, on that bombshell, even if no names are named,
1: thank you very much, Ray. That's all from us. Thank you for joining us this week on The Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review. Rebecca Liu is our producer. Goodbye. Stay safe. See you next week.